0: So in this uh, session, I would like to explore the insight into anatta, into no-self, into selflessness, the emptiness of the self, and this uh, exploration always starts with identifying the object of negation or identifying the object of refutation. So to become a bit more clear uh, what is that self which does not exist. I've used the word narrative self. Sometimes people talk about the ego. That's a bit difficult uh, because uh, the word ego in Western psychology and Western psychology Psychotherapy has a different meaning, a different connotation. Also, the word ego implies that it is like a kind of thing. So it doesn't help, the word ego doesn't help to think about the narrative self as a process. So we are talking about a process, not a thing. So these kind of Teaching sometimes like overcoming the ego or getting rid of the ego or something that doesn't make sense because it's not about getting rid of anything. It's about realizing it hasn't been there in the first place in the way it appears to us. Nothing needs to be overcome or you don't need to get rid of anything. You just need to see that it hasn't been there from the first place. The narrative self has two aspects, that's the words, stories, memories, projections on who you are and what you are and what you're capable of. I'm like this and that. Unfortunately for most of us into that complex is woven the sense of I'm not good enough. Because that was reflected to you at one point before you had any kind of defense mechanism, before there was any capacity of conceptualizing something. So in the age between one and six, if something like you're not good enough and you're not welcomed was uh, communicated to me through words or through behavior, that went stri- stri- straight into, unfiltered, into the sense of I so the sense of i is mixed uh, with the sense of i'm not good enough and i'm not welcome that's why it's so difficult to change that through cognitive therapy to thinking you you don't get there it's it's more it's more subtle it's preverbal it's the sense of i so the narrative self is that loop it's a loop of Blah, 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 I'm this, I'm that. Very For many of us, really deeply mixed with the sense of I'm not good enough. Plus, a felt sense in your body. So, which is, uh, from a Tibetan point of view, we are talking here about the subtle energy body. So, it's not only that we have the dialogue of uh, you should try harder, you're not good enough, and again you know you are stupid, so that's one thing, but that's just stories that just thoughts I mean they would pass in the moment they they are finished yeah? uh, but the problem is there is that mingling with that uh, with a felt sense in your body, you feel like you're not good enough and That's a function of the subtle energy body. It's a contraction. It's a subtle contraction which right now might be not so obvious because you might be quite relaxed right now and there's nobody criticizing you right now. But still, there is a sense, there is a contraction like a localization, like a center position from where you have a sense that you're looking from. And that central position, you know, strangely enough, wanders around. So sometimes it's maybe more localized in the heart or sometimes it's more localized behind your eyes, kind of. Uh, like the sense that you have eyes and you use your eyes to look into a world which is independent from you. So that's that's like where this dualistic split uh, starts. yeah. So the identification with the central position and then the other. And Buddhism is a, is a tradition which leads into the experience of non-duality. And it is this dualistic split between I here and problems and people and the world out there Which makes us reactive, fearful, greedy, jealous, stingy. So the first step is to become a bit more aware of how this I appears to you. This is not so easy because as soon as we look a bit closer, it slips through our fingers because there is nothing solid there. Uh, but yeah, so we kind of do this a bit loosely, lightly. It's particularly challenging if intellectually you have already understand understood that there is no control center somewhere in this. Being in this open process, which is connected with everything, there is no control center like that. So intellectually, that's quite easy to understand, even if you come from neuropsychology. Even if you are a complete materialist, that kind of awakening, moksha, is available to materialists. Yeah. So materialist meaning uh, everything is made out of matter know there is Buddhist schools who hold that view that everything is out of atoms of matter, and then somehow out of complicated matter arises consciousness. So that's a common view uh, in our in our world, and it is also a view in some of the Buddhist traditions. So the realization of selflessness of no self, is not enlightenment in the sense of the Buddhist tradition. It's moksha, it's liberation. But definitely through that realization or the dawning of that realization, you will travel lighter. The problems remain, but there's nobody there who has problems. So there is less tensing against how this moment is. Through so this tensing towards we tend towards our past we tend towards what is happening in the future and we tend towards what is we tend towards what is happening in the present moment and we tend to what might happen in the future and we tend towards that because we are identified with an i which has three characteristics it is one it is separate it exists out of itself and It is unchanging. It remains the same. So there's a sense of I, of an owner, of a possessor of this body and mind, which kind of jumps from moment to moment, from day to day, from year to year, and then even from life to life. How in some Hindu schools they have this idea that there's an Atman, a self, an I, which jumps from life to life. So we say crazy things like that, like, I wish I would have a more healthy body. And that's not just saying, you know, it's just, a, yeah, yeah, I just say this. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's you feel like that. You feel like that the I, who could have another body, is some, something else than the body, something extra. Or we could say things like, I wish I would have a different mood. And that's, again, that's not just um, a, a sentence we say. There is a sense that there is a separate thing somewhere. Of course, when we start to look, we don't find that, which that which could have another mood. But there is a sense, there is an illusion of, there is an I who has moods. We could even say things like, I don't like my personality. It's really a crappy personality. As if there is something else apart from the personality which has a personality. But there is just a personality. There is just a mood. And it's happening to nobody, except the one you make up. So, it, so when we say selflessness or emptiness of the self, obviously we don't say that you don't exist. That would be the most stupid teaching ever, because it's so obvious. I mean, it would be the, the most stupid thing to say, I don't exist, because obviously... Something's happening. There's an experience here. I can't say that I don't exist. I mean, if I can say I don't exist, that proves that I exist. So that's not the object of refutation, like your existence or something like that. What is the object of uh, refutation or negation is something which does not exist, something we create, it's a function of the conceptual mind. It's a, it's, a, it's a loop. And that loop, I already said, lives from seeking, from searching, from dissatisfaction. That's what it lives from. It loves drama. It hates peace. And it will never give up. Because that's its end. and you can't bring it with you into awakening. So the next meditation is a beginning of this exploration and you not know, just a little experiment. So what we will do, we will take a laser sword and we will cut this body which Pass your name into pieces. It's a bit a bit of a bloody uh, bloody experiment. So we will cut your body into pieces, and I will ask you, where's the eye? Where do you feel the eye? And don't think too much. And imagine you would. You you have to make a decision. Maybe there's like doubts, and you, yeah. Maybe it's a little bit more there, but it, it, it's also there. So just imagine you have to make a decision. It's there. It's most likely there. It is easy in the first cut. I just uh, I just say uh, I just describe what we're doing. So. In the first cut, we're cutting off the legs. So you cut off the legs and then I ask you, where's the eye? And I think most of us would say, no, the legs, the legs I have, it's not the eye. the, The eye is definitely in the part which remains. It becomes more difficult when we cut off the head at one point, because in some cultures uh, if you ask a traditional Chinese person, where's the eye, he points to the heart. Chinese people, traditional Chinese people, think that they think with the heart. We are brainwashed through brain science and you know EEG and stuff like that to believe that we think with the brain, that our thoughts are in the brain, and therefore the eye is in the brain. Yeah, but still, it could be a bit uh, a bit different for different people, where they localize the sense of eye. Maybe more in the heart, maybe more in the head. So it can be different. I don't think. Someone identifies the I in the toe. You have a toe. I have a toe. I'm the owner of a toe. I'm up here. Definitely, I can look down and I can be mindful of the toe, but definitely I'm looking from up here, down to a toe. And that's mind, my toe belongs to me. So let's uh, play with that. And we start uh, like before with our meditations, you know, taking some time to allow the body and the mind to settle, assuming the posture. And sliding into meditative awareness, into present moment awareness. Checking in the checking the inner weather possible having some support by the flow of the in- and out-breath kind of anchor into the present moment but lightly, not as a focus or as a concentration just lightly sliding on the in-breaths into the body and with the out-breath letting go opening So, your being becomes more spacious. If there's a blue sky in the place where you live, you can remember that and bring it into the meditation, the vastness of the blue sky. The clarity of the blue autumn sky. And introducing a warmth, a kindness, maybe through a short calling upon the Dalai Lama or the Buddha. And then you rest, returning and resting. Experiencing the flow of the energies in your body And everything is included The whole body is breathing, the whole body is alive So now we take the sword, the laser sword, and we cut off the legs. And then I just ask you, where's the eye? In the legs or in the rest of the body? Where's the central position from where you're looking from? In the legs or in the body? and just come to a conclusion. And then we are cutting off the arms and we put them neatly on top of the legs. And then I ask you, where's the eye? In this heap of arms and legs? meat and bones or in the rest of the body, the trunk of the body. So where's the eye? And notice how that eye, since you can answer the question, how does that eye feel? On what is this answer based when you say it's in the trunk, the eye. I am the trunk and not the heap of legs and arms. So how can you answer that question? Where's the eye? On what is it based? And you hold that a bit into the focus, not too close, not analyzing, just a felt sense of the I, of the me, of the self. So, and then we cut the torso just below the heart level and we put it there. Then again, I ask you, where's the I, the self, the me? And how does it appear? And then we cut off the head. And I ask the same question, where's the, where's the I, the me? And just make a decision. So now become aware that the I, the me, the self, is an object. You are aware of the I and me being more localized either in the head or more localized in the heart. But now you become aware it is an object. That's an object of awareness. The I, the me, the self is an object. So there's two. There's the one who's looking and there's the I, the sense of I, the sense of me, the sense of self. So, and then we make a final cut. We cut the head into two parts from top down to the throat. So you have two parts of your face, of your brain. So on which one is the eye, the me, the self, the right part and the left part. So, if we are now looking at these parts, and remember that we are searching for a single, permanent, separate eye, but when we look in the body, we only find parts. We find many, but we are looking for one. We are looking for the one. And what we are find is parts. So we are not finding the one. We are not finding the one because it does not exist. It's unfindable, it's made up. So now imagine how it would be Put down the burden of the I, the me, the self. There would be still thoughts, there would be still the feelings you have now. There would be still this body. But the burden would dissolve. The self preoccupation would dissolve. The self importance would dissolve. The what about me mantra would dissolve. There would be connectedness, openness. Fearfulness. uh, Freedom of fear. Then you rest, as nobody. Just hearing, feeling, sensing, smelling, seeing. Just thinking, but no center. Centerlessness, openness. heart like the sky and then you rest yes, and the sense of I appears but it's just part of the dream it's just part of what is happening You're much bigger than that. Looking and resting. The awareness is not coming from a center position, from a center. The looking is not coming from a center. It comes from everywhere, nowhere and pervades everything. The object of awareness are known where they are. Not from a separate eye knowing and appearing, happening at the same time. And it's happening to nobody. Then for a few more minutes, we'll just it, and whatever is there for you, appreciating that this moment happens by itself and the awareness of this moment is effortless, boundless and centerless. Yes, and then we transition out of this meditation if you have your eyes closed, maybe stretching, changing position, uh, but not leaving the seat as an explorer. So this moment of transition is important because we might experience some spaciousness, some openness in the meditation when we have your eye, when we have our eyes closed, and then we open our eyes and boom, the whole thing collapses again into the dualistic split. I am here and I'm looking at a world out there which is separated from me. And I'm looking from a kind of central position somewhere here. So it's good to experiment a bit with that moment of transition. So at the end, if you have a formal meditation practice, it doesn't really start, so it's more a sliding in. It's not like you sit and then this event starts, so now I meditate and then there's a bell or something and boom, you get up and that that was the meditation of the day. And now there's the rest of my life, which is definitely not meditation. To deconstruct that boundary And to see the activities in the breaks, also now on the lunch break, as moving meditation. The deconstruction of the solid sense of I, the separate sense of me, which comes with this preoccupation. With this constant revolving around me and mine and myself and it comes with that reactivity and defensiveness well, what about me what do i what do i get out of this for me the center of the universe The most important place in the universe is the I, the me. And what happens to the I and the me is is incredibly important. Why? Because it's happening to me. It's happening to I. It's mine. It's myself. That's why it's so important. So the whole screen of the movie of our life is filled to 80%. With me. There's hardly any space for the sky and the nature and other people. And yeah, there's also space, but it's very small. Because even our relationship or the walk in nature is about me. It's my family, my partnership, my relationship. It's about me. So resistance is to be expected, obviously. But the resistance is futile. But of course there is resistance. And that can show in kind of an intellectual confusion, in tiredness, in insisting, just insisting. Yeah, but it's my feelings. I can feel them. I, it's me. Yeah, so that's part of the... Or I can be like, oh, this is just philosophy. It has nothing to, how would that help me in my life? It's just some thoughts, just some philosophy. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested how to be happy in my relationship. That's what I'm interested in. Stay away with philosophy. And I have thought about it already. I haven't understood it then. I'm not understanding it now. It doesn't make sense. And then it's also good to kind of put it away, yeah, so and to returning, so the returning to that kind of inquiry to that kind of analytical meditations so and different traditions, they do it slightly different, but always returning, so even if you have an intellectual understanding based on philosophy or Western psychology of selflessness, uh, you still you have to do that kind of self-inquiry again and again, because the habit of identification with a separate subtle, solid eye is so strong. It's not, uh, it's not undone by, under, by an intellectual understanding. It needs to, uh, it, the, the experience needs to be, you need to go through that kind of experience, a non-finding of the separate solid eye again and again, and then slowly you undermine it through that. The not finding. So there has been some question. I just check. So what I'm searching is my searching. Mm. So why keep we searching? So maybe it's better to say what you are searching is doing the searching. Because Obviously, you can also say the narrative self is doing the searching. But what the narrative self is using for the searching, that is what it is searching. So what are we using when we are searching is awareness, is consciousness. And awareness and consciousness resides in Rigpa. The narrative self is not conscious. Objects of awareness can't be conscious. So the only, the only domain which is, uh, is able to know is your Buddha nature. That's where knowingness resides. That's where knowingness comes from. The capacity to be aware. The capacity of consciousness resides in Rigpa. So why doing the searching? There is sometimes this teaching, and I might, I might say even uh, I might say it myself, uh, is something like give up the searching. The searching is the problem. The searching covers up that you already have what you search. But don't give up the searching prematurely. I mentioned that before. The the searching falls away once you found. So it's not like intellectually deciding, okay, I'm 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 uh, I'm stopping the searching because you know there's nothing to find and there's nobody who is ser- searching and I already have what I'm searching. You kind of say the sentences, but you have you are not a finder. The finding has not happened. The shift has not happened. So we search. Intellectually knowing that it is an impossible project. But we search. We ask the question. And not only we search like a hobby. It becomes the central movement in our life. It becomes that what we are most passionate about. So don't blow off the search prematurely on a as a rational intellectual decision. And actually a lot of the Buddhist teachings, you know, in the Lamrim, in the gradual path, they are actually teachings about initiating a searching initiating a curiosity, you nor know, showing us how futile it is to seek uh, to seek satisfaction within the domain of the conditioned mind. So a lot of the teachings initiate this searching. Also the teachings on, on the certainty of death and the uncertainty of the time of death. They are also meant to bring a passion and urgency into this, into this question, Who am I? But you have to ask that question, Who am I? Until you find. Until that question dissolves. Not that you have an answer, in the sense of that you can write a book about Who am I, But the question disappears and you are a finder and you know that you are a finder because there is no seeking anymore and that doesn't mean that you stop to attend teachings or that you do a practice somehow but there is no pressure in that anymore, no seeking, no No sense anymore that anything, anyone can add to this insight. So for most people that shift doesn't happen like boom. For some it does. It is for most of us a gradual process which even might be unnoticed for a while you just start to see after a while wow I'm traveling lighter wow there's less there's less of this narcissistic dialogue going on in my mind wow I'm just I'm just more I'm just Less interested in the stories of the past. I'm less interested to try to present a certain image to the outside world and and you just start to notice that. You notice, oh, you know this used to freak me out. Someone looking like this at me used to freak me out, and now I have experience. Now I experience, they are looking at nothing. Yes, they have a mental image of me somewhere. They see me in a certain way and they see me as a body. But from my first person experience, there's nothing there. Obviously, I'm not this body. Obviously, I'm not this personality which is criticized right now. So it kind of goes through. You are not hooked as much as before by certain things. So all these would be signs that you are heading towards the right direction, this traveling lighter through life. That brings also certain challenges with it. For example, if you are very goal-oriented person in terms of career, in terms of progress, in terms of attaining things. That's sometimes challenging for people to be content and happy with what is. And you're not supposed to do it because you're supposed to buy the iPhone 13 or, I don't know, 14. I don't know. So there's a lot of interest in our culture to keep us in this dissatisfied, seeking, acquiring mind. Seeking for entertainment, seeking for possession, seeking for fame. A satisfied content person is really a pain in the ass for, for, for Apple and Microsoft. And also, for some friends you know, there's more people having experience of awakening, finding a place of contentment and peace than you believe because they hide it. It's almost like a sickness you need to hide yeah i'm I, you know you know what I'm fine, I'm genuinely fine, I'm not busy. I don't have goals like in step and step step to reach that goal of something. No, I I don't have that. I'm still active, uh, yeah. So I'm I'm just saying a person like this. Uh, it's it's like you don't you know it's like strange. <laughs> it's like this person must be. It's probably a. Uh, 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 Drugged that person. <laughs> yeah. It's like tranquilizers. Yeah, something is wrong with this person. So it's it's a challenge to stand up for your own fundamental well being, and to and to uh, to kind of be loyal to that you know, to that part in you which is which doesn't need all this stuff, which doesn't need to be loved, which wants to love, which wants to give. It's not like. It doesn't want to squeeze out people. It it, it, that self doesn't need that. It wants to contribute. It, It wants to help. That's its natural expression, and that's that's what your life will become more and more then. So that fundamental well being which reveals itself through the practice uh, through the insight into no self, that doesn't mean that you don't have bad days. Yeah? That doesn't mean that your addiction immediately goes away. That doesn't mean that you're not getting angry anymore. Yeah, but it's just it's it's just that's just happening. And and you feel Somehow, you know, you feel, you experience that everything is fine as it is. Even a rotten day. Because it's happening to nobody. It's not personal. It's, it's unity. Emerging from unity. Being in the nature of unity. Okay? A rotten day. No big deal. It's not me. It's not mine. It's just one of the many rotten days who happened today. And I can contribute healing to the rotten days. Through loving awareness. And I'm doing that not for me, I'm doing that for us. So there was another question. Yeah, this question about loneliness and... Relying on yourself in the end. I mean, just the sentence, um, you are alone. Yeah, I mean, yes, I might say that. So you are alone. If I look for the, well, well, let's say, I am alone. And I have, re- I have to rely upon myself. So if I say this sentence, I, but what do I mean with that? What is the reference of that I, which could be alone? So when we say it, like, superficially, then... We have a sense, we know what we're talking about. Yes, I am alone. But if we look deeper into this sentence, starting with the I, it kind of starts to evaporate, because who could be the I which is alone? I can't find the I which is alone. And then the word alone. Ah, alone, alone, alone. What is it referring to? Are you really sure you know what you're talking about when you say I am alone? If you don't find I. And if you don't fight aloneness as a thing, as a solid thing, which you could experience. So when you do that, the experience, the space which then opens... feels more like you're never alone. An I which does not exist can't be alone. And the story of being alone is just a story. There's nothing behind there. You can't find loneliness somewhere as a thing. So the the sentence I am alone is is a is happening in the domain of the dual mind of the dissatisfied mind of the meaning making mind the emphasis on the group and the emphasis in the Tibetan tradition that the recognition of Rigpa, the recognition of innermost awareness happens in relationship it is transmitted it's pointed out in a relationship it's not not that something is transmitted to you but in a relationship, in a group, that which we are exploring here is more likely to reveal itself. I think that's probably one of the conditions of the factors which, in my case, had the biggest impact, but also in general, uh, in the traditions, that the recognition of innermost awareness of Rigpa is very unlikely to happen without that kind of field, without that kind of relationship to people who are familiar with what we are doing here I'm not sure if that answers the question but you can add to it yeah so the experience I disappeared yeah so that's what it disappeared there is the the relative I the mini I disappeared but the witness of that remained and that's exactly that that is a description of that kind of experience so by not finding the mini me that's not the end it's not annihilation but there is something reveals itself, something bigger, something deeper, which remains and which is there all the time but is unnoticed because we are so occupied with the identification with the mini eye. But in that moment where that mini eye disappears, and that can sometimes happen under pressure, under shock, or it, it, disap- it can happen in nature, in love. In, uh, so in different uh, situations, or in meditation, in meditation practice, in ritual. Yeah? So rituals are spaces which we create so that this can happen, that falling away of the eye. But when the eye, the central position falls away, because it is recognized as a construction, then there is not nothing. There is a there is a bit of a subtlety here in terms of being the witness and really resting at that which remains. So being a witness, witness consciousness, or being the observer, the observer consciousness, which is a level of practice you also find in the kind of mindfulness teachings which are around, yeah? So it's kind of stepping out of the experience and looking at it. But there could be still a sense of I. I am the witness. There, there still is kind of a central position. The observer. The observer I. The observer consciousness. So that's fantastic. It's a huge step, of course. Because it, it 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 gives you the way, it gives you a space to uh, have a bit of a distance to the content of your experience and handle the content in a more skillful and wholesome way. But there might be still a subtle, more subtle sense of I. But nevertheless, there's still a sense of I. Oh, oh finally, I'm not the content of my experience. no. I am one with everything. Yeah, so that's good news for the narrative self that it is that it is not a little thing, but it's it's the I which is one with everything. Yeah. So what we are negating, what we are deconstructing is is that I which is one with everything. Is that I which just awakened. (sighs) Wow, now I am awakened. I'm I rest in awareness. I, I rest in awareness. It's such a wonderful place. So that I that I that is the subtle level of the object of refutation. So there is only that which remains. But there is no I there, and that which remains is not separate from the content. So the level of observer consciousness, of being the witness, this is very precious. But then one needs to even make a backward step from that. Because that is still an experience of the conditioned mind, of the relative mind. I am one with everything. I am the mountains, I am the ocean. There is no I in the non-dual experience. There's nothing and everything at the same time without separation. So the next question So, initially, when we start to relax the identification with the the narrative self, so we are traveling lighter, there's spaciousness, there might be the fear that in order to accomplish the daily tasks, in order to go to work, you need to kind of snap out of that. Yep. You, you, you need to kind of uh, regress into an identification with your skills. in So to come to a doing, I need to snap back into the conceptual mind into making plans into imagining the future and you know putting things together to have a favorable future so that that is very common and it is a lack of trust so we we are still trusting that the only The only part of me which gets things done is the scared, fearful I. There might be even the fear, hey, when I just, if I'm just one with everything and I'm just deeply fulfilled and I'm immersed in a fundamental well-being, I have no reason to get out of bed anymore. Because what brought me out of bed every morning so far was fear. What brought me out of bed was harshness or pushing or greed. So if that falls away, what then? Am I going to just sit on the couch? And there's also that... that relying on on you know knowledge you have acquired and experience and, and and all that stuff that's what we trust yeah. but when we are deepening the experience of fundamental well-being we experience the the spaciousness the the spacious clarity within of our being more and more we start to trust that in that and from that comes an intuition, an intelligence, which is not conceptual, which has nothing to do with planning. It has nothing to do with preparing. This is called the five wisdoms of our Buddha nature. And they are sometimes represe- represented in these five colors, yeah, the five rainbow colors. So what we are starting to experience that in that spaciousness, in that openness, there is a knowingness, an intuition in any moment to do what is the most wholesome thing to do. I mean, maybe I can use the example of teaching, yeah? So in the beginning, when I started to teach, like 15 years ago or something, like it took me a week to prepare a weekend like this. You know, planning, getting the text together, reading, imagining what I'm going to say, you know, like having pages and pages around me, books for to quote from and stuff like that i only trusted that that uh, th- that level of my of my being and then slowly slowly through more familiarity with uh, the spacious intelligence which is always available that was not th- that kind of dissolved uh, and i realized that What I'm sharing in the teachings, which is available to me when I prepare, obviously is also available now. I I, I don't need to prepare this moment. And I have no idea what I'm going to say next. It just comes. I have no plan for this weekend. I I don't want to cover certain topics or themes or there's no structure. It looks maybe from the outside as if there's a structure, but from here, from first-person experience, there's no structure. It's just what's coming out. I'm also not like, you know, when I when I have a, a difficult conversation coming up, like on Monday, something. I'm not spending the weekend planning what I'm going to say and you know imagining all the scenarios and things like that. No, because I have understood the best preparation for that meeting is to be here now. To familiarize myself with love in the moment it is only possible, and that's now. And if I do that today, and Sunday, if I do that, then it's likely that I bring that intelligence and that quality into the meeting, and I will know what I'm going to say. so of course you know, since we are like babies in this uh, so for for this life maybe it will be always still a mixture yeah between those two domains yeah so the the conditioned relative domain the fearful domain but then maybe more and more to trust that spontaneous intelligence in us that spontaneous spontaneous intuition which you know we all know. I mean, we have this experience. We go somewhere and we know this is the right thing to do, uh, and this is the right thing to read. Or you know, it's like it's not that it is not available to us at all. It is it, it 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 breaks through. You know, like decisions you have made where you and everyone around you thought this is the most crazy thing to do, but you knew this is. What is? This is what is happening. This is what, you know, you know, some people call it intuition. And unfortunately, often the relative mind, the conceptual mind, it, uh, resists that intuition. So instead of following the gut feeling, let's say it like that, we follow the wishes of our parents and then being unhappy for many years because it was not what we were supposed to do. So a fully awakened person has none of this kind of decision-making process, planning, Schedule, none of that. And still, it's amazing, you know, to, for example, to be in a presence like Lama Sopa. Still, every move, every word is exactly the most beneficial thing which can appear in that moment. And sometimes these decisions, which come from a deeper place, which come from Buddha nature, they are actually scary for the narrative self. For the the narrative self, no, don't go there. It's not safe. So maybe one could... I mean, I'm I'm able to do what I'm doing now, because... That it, it's also resting on a lot of experience. Yeah. So I can't. I, I can't. I can't be here where I am now uh, in in all areas of my life. Yeah. But my my inspiration is to increase that capacity, which is manifesting when I teach. I I can. I can trust that capacity when I go shopping, when I meet people. So I try to expand that way of being into other areas of my life.